Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health is now saying he can't guarantee that current COVID-19 restrictions on business are going to be lifted on January 26th as originally planned. Of course, it's been two years now since this pandemic started. Businesses deserve some clarity, right? We'll talk about that. We also have our weekly political roundup with former Toronto Star journalist Richard Brennan. And Team Canada athletes are inspiring Canadians to pursue glory in their new Beijing 2022 campaign. What does this entail? Well, double Olympic champion and chef de mission for the Beijing Olympics, Katrina Lemay-Doan, will join us on the program to talk about that. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with today, let's talk about what's happening here in the province of Ontario vis-a-vis Omicron and the lockdowns that have gone on. Uh, we know, uh, as you've listened to the program over the last couple of days, uh, children will return to school as of this Monday. Actually, some are in school today, but on Monday it will be a day to actually get back into this and go full four. But what about businesses? And there are a number of, uh, well, some restrictive businesses that are really suffering as a result of this. And they've been suffering for about two years right now. Uh, yesterday, uh, when our chief medical officer, uh, Dr. Kira Moore, was uh, addressing the media, somebody asked him, you know, are you going to ease up the restrictions? And he says, I can't say for sure. Uh, and that's that's not the kind of news that people want to hear, especially uh, those that are struggling to keep their doors open or those who are not allowed to have their doors open for that matter. Uh, thankfully, there are some people that are advocating on behalf of business here. One of them, of course, are the good friends at the, the Ontario Chamber of Commerce who are now urging the government to do something about this and be more specific. Joining us to talk about all this is uh, Daniel Safiani, who is the uh, Vice President of Policy for the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. And Daniel, pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Hi, Bill. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, frustration is the word that comes to mind as I talk to an awful lot of small businesses, uh, not just here in the Hamilton and London areas, but but right across the province. Uh, and, and, and Daniel, as you and I have talked about in the past, <laughs> you know, we're not necessarily saying give us a day per se. Please give us some details. I mean, I, I guess most of the frustration that I'm hearing from, uh, from business owners is they just don't know what's going on. They're in the dark, and that just exacerbates things, doesn't it? I mean, you've you've taken the words right from my mouth, Bill. It's 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 so true. And you know, when we hear from our members on a daily basis, frustration is one part of it. But yes, the other part of it is a lack of predictability and visibility to allow businesses any sense of being able to plan ahead, um, to be able to staff up as required, to either plan to ramp up or down their inventory according to uh, incoming restrictions that uh, might be imposed or eased. And here we again find ourselves just uh, eight business days out from the next government date in which uh, the restrictions are set to end or be re-extended. And, uh, you know, we're again left in the dark here. Well, and, and that's the, the one of the key elements of this. And I think you've just underscored again this idea about frustration. that You mentioned the date January 26th, with the, which the Premier mentioned. Uh, yesterday, Dr. Moore talked about it. Uh, but Dr. Moore also reminded us January 26th is not the day the businesses are going to reopen. It's the day that they'll reevaluate this. And you don't know what's down the road, do you? No, and nor do we know exactly what those reevaluations are being based on. And, you know, I think... One of the things uh, that we are urging for is, uh, you know, if this does need to be extended, uh, the the degree and the nature of the supports need to be further evaluated. Because, you know, on one hand, we have uh, some supports that have been announced, um, which are, uh, you know, too broad, such as the electricity rate subsidy that applies writ large to everyone. Um, And then we have the small business support grant, which only applies to those that are fully closed. So if you're a dry cleaner that has suffered uh, from reduced foot traffic, or uh, if you're a restaurant at greatly reduced capacity, you won't, you won't actually qualify for that. And so, you know, businesses two years in right now are highly indebted. Many of them don't have a lot of room for error at this point um, and are barely hanging on. Uh, and so, uh, you know, th- these t- these types of uh, confusions uh, really manifest in a business continuity problem. And, and, you know, unfortunately, in absence of more clarity and more targeted policy, I think we're going to find ourselves on the other end of more business closures. 
Daniel, from the, the chamber's perspective, uh, talk to us about exactly how you guys feel this process is going. Now, we know, for instance, uh, that the Premier has told us time and time and time again that he listens to medical advice uh, before they decide on policy, and there is the Ontario Science Table. We know that. It's not, not just Dr. Moore. There's Dr. Uni and a number of uh, well-qualified experts that are sitting down there, and they're, they're the ones that are offering advice. Who's giving them the business advice? I know you guys are talking. I don't know if, if the government's listening. But, you know, and when I see some of these policies that are being adopted now by the government, uh, I got to figure, you know, if you guys are at the table, you're going to say, whoa, time out. That doesn't make sense. And you just, I think, underscored maybe one of the most important ones about who qualifies for some of these subsidies. I mean, if you've lost 50 percent of your business, you qualify. If you've only lost 48 percent of your business, you're out of luck. I mean, I understand you have to draw the line someplace, but boy, there's an awful lot of losers and not too many winners with some of these policies. Yeah, Bill. And and just before I answer your question, I I do want to underscore the human aspect to this. These are people's livelihoods. Um, They've invested, um, many of them, everything they have into a family business, and they've barely hung on for two years and uh, through no fault of their own now have to close their doors, which is deeply saddening. Um, And, you know, in terms of the advice, look, we're at the table uh, we are doing the best we can to provide our perspective on this, which to be clear, we are not the medical experts. So we are not going to take mm-hmm. issue with the modeling or the necessary measures that need to be taken um, to uh, you know, protect our hospitals, for instance, from being overwhelmed. But in the same breath, uh, right, you can't say on January 3rd, we're going to impose these restrictions but oh, by the way, we're going to wait several days to announce any kind of uh, business supports. Um, we'll have some kind of portal for you to apply for for rebates, but that's not going to be open until January 18th. And then the payment's going to come after that. Bills are due right now. And you know what we learned last year, Bill, uh, was that you know the uh, Financial Accountability Office Uh, provided insights on the billions of dollars of transfer payments that are sitting right now in provincial government coffers that are intended for COVID-19 programs and support. And so I think one of the questions we're asking ourselves right now in the government is, you know, why were these funds not used to secure and stockpile rapid testing, ventilation? Um, We knew supply chain delays uh, and an impending wave of uh, COVID-19 was going to come during the winter months regardless. Uh, Why not set up these financial supports for businesses earlier on so that if and when public health measures do need to be imposed, we are ready immediately out the door with targeted supports that are commensurate with the losses that businesses are incurring here through no fault of their own. And, and it's it's called being proactive as opposed to reactive. And, and and I know that's a criticism that not just the Ontario government, but many provincial governments have had to face. And I think with some justification too, uh, that they're they're waiting. And and then again, you're getting half measures. You know, they announce a closure, for instance, and say, oh, we'll get about, get back to you about some of these assistance programs. But I, I know talking to Rocco Rossi, of course, uh, your, your president and CEO for the Ontario Chamber, uh, has, has been saying this since day one. Uh, subsidies are... are look great on paper but for somebody who's been suffering for the last two years like most small businesses have uh to say okay go ahead and pay that rent and you'll get a a, a bit of a substitute where are you going to get the money to pay the rent you don't have any money coming in right now i mean they don't seem to understand exactly what kind of pressures these small businesses are facing right now uh and it's one thing to say okay you'll go to tax credit or get a rebate on this but that means you've got to put the money up front to do that and not every business that i've talked to is even able to do that much no, it, it, th- I mean, that's the crux of it, right? Um, and, and part of this now is because th- the crisis is, we're almost 24 months into this, right? So businesses yeah. have been going on and off and trying to hang on and borrow where they can and use these programs. And yes, some of them have been um, enormously helpful over the last two years, but their effectiveness wanes in light of the fact that, you know, to your point, Bill, um, there's real cash flow constraints that businesses are are um, are confronting, and so you know one of the things we're asking for um, is to for the government to work with financial institutions and the federal government 
uh, to make sure we're actually forgiving loans for the businesses that are most severely impacted by public health restrictions. And for that, and for programs like the Small Business Support Grant Program, which which is the best type of support to your question, Bill, because it's cash in hand that can be used to cover overhead expenses, to pay for rent, which is going to be a due again in a couple of weeks, um, to ensure that those programs are going to those that need it most. And when we limit the subscription list of those programs to just those that are fully closed and not those that are losing serious revenues as a result of the public health restrictions, we are missing the mark. And missing the mark, perhaps as we are learning about the crisis and just adjusting to the pandemic for the first time is excusable. And the frustration is that now we're two years in. So this is no longer really uh, deemed excusable at, at this point to not um, uh, to not have the scoping right on these programs and to not have them ready um, at the same time as public health restrictions are being announced. One of you guys, the things that you guys do so well at the Ontario Chamber, though, Daniel, is uh, you tell stories. And as you said, you humanize this. Uh, you know, this is not something in the abstract. I mean, small businesses, and, and I know everybody is aware of the cliche, but it's not its not a cliche. It's a truism. Uh, it's the backbone of the economy. That's all there is to it. And the people that run these businesses and own these businesses, they're our neighbors. They're the people that live across the road from us. You know, they're the ones that, and even if it's a large franchise, they're, if, you know, if they're buying that franchise, that's a small business. You know, the, some of those mon monies may go to some head office someplace, but those people that have are putting their necks and their finances on the line for that are the ones that are being impacted by this. And and if they can't make it, uh, you know, that's when you see sometimes for sales signs going up here saying, you know what, I had to close the doors or my business is gone. I don't know what I'm going to do. Uh, well, we, when we talk about economic recovery, we can't just wait and say, okay, it's over now. We can all come out and everything is going to be happy. We've got to start planning for this. And that's that's why I know that you and, and the Ontario Chamber and the local chambers uh, in London and in Hamilton have been very vocal about this to say, you've got to tell us what your plan is. You know, we're not saying you guys are dead wrong. We're saying, please let us in. We're, we're players here. You know, the, we've, we've got to understand exactly what you guys are going to do and how you're going to do that. Uh, and like, for, for instance, I know that when I was talking with Rocco Rossi about this, the last time there was a, a shutdown, they basically came in and said, two days later, you guys can open up. Uh, well, you know, who's ready to open up in two days and 48 hours notice? <laughs> I've talked to a lot of former uh, employers that have said, you know what, I can't get anybody to come back to work because they're afraid, hey, they're just going to shut it down again in two weeks. Why should I do this? I mean, there's got to be some consistency here. Look, you're, I, I totally agree with you, Bill. And you know, just a few things to unpack in what you've said. Uh, number one is small businesses are the backbone of our economy. And you hear this phrase get thrown around, but what does that actually mean? Um, they account for the small, medium-sized enterprises account for some 98% uh, of total business and, and the majority of uh, employment. So this is when you talk about economic recovery on the other side of this and how are we going to sustain economic growth? Well, it's going to come from um, small businesses thriving and there being a strong entrepreneurial spirit. Spirit Right now, um, that has been gutted and business confidence is uh, has taken a serious hit over the last couple of years. The second thing that you talk about is consistency, predictability, and finding out kind of at the 11th hour, oh, we're shutting down, or uh, Friday at 6 p.m., okay, we're opening up Monday. Reopening um, and going on and off, is not a, it's not a switch, right? Uh, there's massive costs incurred here. Preparation is needed. If you're a restaurant, inventory needs to be purchased and secured. Uh, businesses need to staff up for an opening amid a labor shortage. Health and safety plans accounting for perhaps new capacity restrictions need to be accounted for in terms of uh, you know, the layout of the store or the restaurant if there's a new capacity restriction in place. Those, um, those plans don't get developed overnight. Um, you, know, you need to invest in additional PPE. There's hard costs to these things, Bill, and it's all right now um, largely on the backs of those small business owners to have the wherewithal to both navigate a confusing world of government supports, which are at the end of the day, largely inadequate. Um, and uh, in very short order, be able to figure out if you're in a position to open or not. I mean, anecdotally here in Toronto, we observe tons of stores that have just said, look, we're closed until further notice. And they're not even necessarily closed because of the restrictions. It's just because, I mean, 
consumer confidence is down. Uh, we hear from uh, our, our members in, in hair salons and other places that you know, appointments have been canceled. Foot traffic is dramatically down, even for those places that have tried to stay open. So it's no surprise we see a handful of businesses saying, look, there's the economics are just not there. The supply and demand is not there for us to try to open our door. We're just going to lose more money here. So we're closed until further notice. And it's, it, that's, it, you know, it is really disheartening uh, to see that, particularly when I think we have a lot of the tools in place uh, to be able to manage a more safe and sustained opening. Um, but we'd like to see the province make the necessary investments uh, to be able to facilitate and, and foster that sustained opening. Uh, here, here to that, and here's hoping that uh, we get some sort of an update, and small business gets some sort of an update on that. Uh, thanks again for the great work that you guys are doing at the Ontario Chamber, though, uh, Daniel, to keep uh, these th th this government's feet to the fire, and and to make sure that we can create some of these partnerships to make sure that uh, that there will be a strong economic recovery when we come out of this. And we are going to come out of this, but let's make sure that we're not too banged up and bruised to to be able to make it work once we do that. Uh, we'll certainly stay in touch on this. Enjoy the weekend, and uh, we'll uh, talk again hopefully next week with some better news for it. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Bet you. Daniel Safiani, of course, is the Vice President of Policy for the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's been a hectic week, a very crazy week in politics, uh, both uh, federally and provincially. And uh, I suppose maybe one of the big stories that uh, seemed to grab everybody's attention uh, was from Quebec, where Quebec Premier uh, Francois Legault said he's putting pressure on people who have not received their COVID-19 vaccine by proposing a health tax on individuals who need medical attention because of the disease. Now, even with caseload skyrocketing, at least one political expert says that Legault's plan might be more bark than bite. Global's Kyle Benning has details. It has been the main objective of political leaders throughout the pandemic. Get people vaccinated to avoid overloading hospitals. But now Quebec's strict proposal to implement a health tax on unvaccinated adults has one political analyst feeling skeptical. McGill's Daniel Bilan says talk of the tax could be a way of keeping attention away from the resignation of the province's top doctor and how the province has handled the Omicron wave. But this is also a way to shift the conversation away from uh, the resignation of Dr. Arruda and why he resigned and was it forced to resign or not. And also discussion about some of the public health measures that were taken or not taken by the government. Elected officials and public health officers in half a dozen provinces say they aren't considering implementing a similar tax. Kyle Benning, Global News. Yeah, but if the Premier wanted to get everybody's attention, he certainly did that. So uh, to talk about the week in politics, so please to welcome back to the program uh, Richard Brennan. Richard, of course, is a former journalist with the Toronto Star who uh, covered both Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for many, many years. Uh, Badger, always great to have you on the program. Hope you're doing well these days. I'm just Jim Dandy. Bill, how are you? Good, good. You're all vaxxed up. You've got the booster and everything else. So, I mean, this oh, is not going to apply to you. but. But vaccines are still the thing, and Legault's announcement certainly ruffled an awful lot of feathers. Premier Ford, of course, here in Ontario, was one of the first ones to say, uh-uh, we're not going there. Uh, I, and again, to the clip we just played there, I don't know how practical this is, uh, but it, it certainly got a reaction. And I know that uh, when the, the, he made this announcement earlier this week, and, and by the way, there was a companion announcement, by the way, that said you can't uh, go into a liquor store or a cannabis store in Quebec unless you've got proof of vaccination. Uh, all of a sudden, there are big, long lineups for people to say, OK, I'm rolling up my sleeve. So if that was the desired impact, uh, it started to work anyway. You're right, Bill. I mean, I, I disagree vehemently with the, you know, with what the approach, but it seems to have worked. It, you've heard about, you know, the, the carrot and the stick. Well, yeah. this was the stick and, and people are lining up, as you said, in Quebec to get their shots now. They don't want to pay that tax. They want to be able to go to the liquor store and all that stuff. So maybe maybe this will never even you know uh, be put into regulation or legislation, but the the result is the same that he's getting people to actually pay attention and and see their folly, if you will, of not being you know not getting vaccinated, not either for reasons uh, unknown or just that they haven't bothered, but the people are doing it now. And again, I I I disagree that I I. I've, big on you know it's a universal health care system and you can't be isolating certain people and saying that we're going to tax you or tax them or for whatever reason but it seems to have worked at least 
Well, and and again, it, when you get into the logistics, I mean, we, you know, speculating, I guess, to a certain extent, uh, the consensus seemed to be that if they were going to go forward with this, uh, they'd probably just, you'd be penalized when you filed your taxes, your income tax, uh, which is, you know, not until the end of April for most of us, I guess, uh, when they're going to do that. And who knows where the pandemic's going to be by then? You know, if, if things are opening up again, and by the way, Quebec's already started to open up again, uh, this may all be forgotten by, by you know, first part of April. So uh, if he wanted to grab people's attention, he still did that. Uh, but it's unusual, though, for governments to get adamant about these policies. And in a companion piece, uh, let's talk a little bit about the federal policy, about, uh, you know, if you want to drive a truck across the border, you better be fully vaccinated. Uh, they seemed a couple of days ago to vacillate on that, but then the uh, the prime minister's office came in and said, I don't know where these guys got their information. We're doing it. It starts up tomorrow. Uh, and they're getting a lot of pushback on that. But he's saying, uh, look, that's what we need to do. What are your thoughts on the, on the prime minister and the federal policy? Well, it makes complete sense for the you know, protection of the truck drivers themselves. I mean, they have an important job right now. Let's face it. And God bless them. You know, they're going across the border into the states and back and forth and delivering the things and the items and, and that people want. So they should be vaccinated for them for their own safety and for the safety of the people that they have to deal with. I, I don't think I it's just to me, it's a no brainer. And I, I understand this pushback from the agency, and they say, well, it means I think the number they use is about 26,000 truckers uh, across North America that could be impacted by this. Uh, and, and, and you get into this issue of human rights again. I get that. Uh, but, you know, they're not saying you must get vaccinated. They're just saying you can't drive a truck across the border if you're not vaccinated. That's all there is to it. Uh, it's not as if these guys are going to be out of work. I'm concerned about the impact it's going to have on supply chains, too. But at the same token, how many more times are we going to see these these you know increases in in the numbers here and simply say, well, you know, we've got to tighten down the borders? Uh, I, I know that uh, you know Aaron O'Toole has already chastised the government for doing something like this, but he was one of the first guys to say shut everything down when the Omicron virus started up again. You can't have it both ways, can you? Well, Mr. O'Toole uh, has taken an odd approach, and I'm being generous when I say that. In, in that, you know, one minute he says, you know, shut it down. And then he goes to bat for the, uh, you know, the anti-vaxxers. So I, I, I'm not sure where he's at. But you can, what was, what is happening here is you can see the, and listen to the frustration in people's voices, be it Legault or be it the prime minister, being anybody that has to make decisions that hopefully that, that impact people's lives and hopefully decisions that will maybe save their life. They're just saying, Come on, folks, get with the plan here. We're trying to we're trying to get through this pandemic. We're trying to make sure that you're not you don't get sick and die. And would you please just go get a, a vaccination? It, it isn't asking a whole lot. And I think it's it really a lot of it's just frustration on a lot of people's behalf. They've had enough. But where do you balance? Because I'm that frustrated, and so are you. I know we've talked about this many times over the last couple of weeks and months now. And uh, and there was, a, a I thought, a very insightful op-ed piece that was in the Hamilton paper a couple of, I guess about a week ago from uh, P.J. McCandy from the Carmen's Group that, again, I think very uh, accurately, uh, you know, outlined exactly how frustrated people are, not just business people, and said, look, we're going to have to learn to live with this and move on. And I, I agree with that to a point. But when the numbers are this high and, and there's pressure on the hospital system right now, uh, I don't know that we can move on until those numbers start to go down again. Well, Bill, I mean, the, this, you know, the uh, situation seems to change every day when you read stories on, on COVID and uh, Omicron. But uh, the thing is that I, I read that 50% of the people in the ICU are people that weren't, aren't vaccinated. Yeah. And, you know, that may have changed since. But what, what does it tell you? Something has to be done. Legault took a, a real leap, maybe a bridge too far, and said, "You know, we're going to we're going to uh, tax you if you don't do it." It's just it's it's an approach that we couldn't ever imagined, you know, two years ago ever happening. But it has come to the point where it's just it's it's time to get past this. It's time to go get your vaccinations. Please put your your thoughts and, and worries aside. And go get it done, you know, if you're a trucker, whoever you might be. And we've seen the results of it. People, people who, who are unvaccinated are very sick. I mean, it, but so are, so are people that are vaccinated as well. Because it's like the flu. 
you know, you're, you're, you're going to get sick regardless. So you might be vaccinated. It'll reduce the impact of that. Bill, there's, a, there's uh, like I say, there's a real frustration out there and people have, people just want to get past this. So do make, you know, do whatever you have to, to see that we do get past it because, you know, people's lives have been turned upside down, you know, mothers and, and fathers, you know, st- having to stay home so they can teach their, you know, teach their kids online, help teach their kids online. It, it's a situation we just, like we, I say, couldn't imagine over two years ago that we would ever be here, but we are here. And, and people are saying, like Legault, we've got to get through it. Well, and, and to the numbers, and I know there's always going to be people, I'll, I'll get the emails, I'm sure you will too, after our conversation here today, saying, come on, it's not as serious as everybody says, Omicron's not that severe, it's, it's like a bad flu, well, it's not, uh, you talk to the experts about that. But the other element to this too, and you're right, there are people that are in ICUs and in hospitals right now that have been bubble vaxxed and even had their booster. Uh, but the majority of them that have been vaccinated and are in ICU have pre-existing conditions. And then what this has done is it's it's flared up those pre-existing conditions. Like a great example, we just saw in the news today, uh, the great soccer player, the Canadian soccer player, Alfonso Davies, who's one of the, the rock stars now in the soccer world, uh, had COVID a couple of weeks ago. He's, he's an elite athlete, so he's seemingly recovered. But now they just diagnosed him. He's got myocarditis, that, that inflammation of the heart. He's a young, great athlete. I mean, and we saw that happen with other young athletes, too. It's something that, you know, okay, fine, COVID's over with, but what's it doing to your body in the meantime? I don't know how long that guy's going to be out if he's going to play. Certainly, probably not going to play in that, that game coming up at the end of the month at Hamilton. Uh, but these are some of the things that can happen. And you can't just dismiss those and say, well, that's every once in a while. You don't know that it's not going to happen to you or to your mom or your dad or your aunt or your uncle. Those are the things that we have to be cognizant of, and that seems to be lost in the discussion now. Nobody's impervious to this. I don't care who you are. You know, like you pointed out, an elite athlete, and you know, you, you got to worry about you got to worry about uh, you know the elderly, you, you know, you be your parents, your grandparents, or whatever. You you just have to think about other people. That's the bottom line here. Think about your other people as well as yourself, and say. You know, do I really want to get, you know, get sick and, and pass it on to my mom or dad or my grandparents? Do I really want to be responsible for that? And it, it's happening. It's happening all over now. I mean, people are getting it everywhere, Bill. God, I know, you know, every every day I talk to people that know somebody or have, you know, yeah. relatives. or And it's just, it's not like the COVID of before where you did hear, you know, periodically you knew somebody, you know, but it was generally known. But this is, this is impacting people everywhere in this province regardless and everywhere in this country regardless where they live in and you know it's gotten to the point where you know it's 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 no it's no longer well jesus it's just that odd person that's getting why do we worry about it it's not the odd person that's getting it now a lot of people are getting and to the fact you know the fact i think that at some point we'll all get it could well be and and by the way, just to finish off that point, Alfonso Davies did not have a heart condition before he got COVID. After COVID, he's got a heart condition. So, you know, do the math on that. I got to ask you about the political end of this. I know we're almost out of time, and this is a topic that probably could take at least an hour to discuss here, Badger. There is going to be an election in Quebec this year. Uh, there's certainly going to be an election here in Ontario the first week of June. The Ford government's been chastised roundly by a number of people about their policies and not being uh, proactive and being reactive. Uh, yet the polling that's come out, and by the way, that's a story in and of itself. It shows that uh, notwithstanding all the criticism, uh, they're still ahead in the polls. Uh, and is that a surprise to you? Well, I, I, people are pretty forgiving quite on the whole. Canadians, in fact, are very forgiving. And they know that this is, a, this is an unusual situation we're in, something we haven't seen you know, in 100 years probably. But the point is that the... They're, they're saying, you know, well, this government it maybe is not reacted as well as they should have in certain at certain times, or, or maybe they should have taken measures more quickly and that. But they're they're willing to say that. <clears throat> pardon me. Uh, they're willing to say that at least they're trying to do something, and nobody has a, nobody has the secret formula how to get through this, and people are saying. Well, at least they're doing something. Sometimes not right, sometimes uh, wrong, but they're they're trying. 
uh, a lot of people would say they, they haven't tried very hard. And what they've done is uh, it's been chaotic at best. For the most part, people are willing to forgive that, I guess. Well, there's a couple of factors about this. And by the way, I mentioned there's a story within the polling. I know there's a, a story on CBC the other day about the fact that, you know, the Ford government actually commissioned this and they used taxpayers' money. Uh, to your point, I mean, you've been covering this stuff for years. Governments do that all the time, uh, internal polling. And, of course, they're using taxpayers' money for that. It's not party money. Uh, so put that, you know, in perspective. But, you know, when you look at this and say the government's still, the Ford government's still ahead, is that also a reflection on the two opposition parties? Because remember the last election, uh, when Kathleen Wynne was was getting beat up for a number of different policies, of course, a lot of them were energy policies and, of course, the deficit. Uh, the last six months of her mandate, Badger, it was a death march. We all knew that, uh, that there was no way this party was going to recover. Yet the Ford government seems, I don't know if resilient is the right word, but are people looking at this and saying, well, he's the devil we know. We're not crazy about the other two alternatives. Well, there's part of that true. I think what this government has to really worry about is uh, – small business and the impact that they their decisions have made on them. So I, I, I really believe that they've, they've lost any kind of uh, uh, good value that they, they had with uh, small business. So that, that's going to be, that's going to be a, a problem that we don't really see yet. And we'll see how that, that uh, uh, filters out as, as things move on. So much can change, Bill. I, you know, the fact is that they're, you know, right now more or less holding their own, there, there could be issues that we don't even know will prop up or crop up and we, and could derail the whole government. Or it could be that they'll, they'll keep, you know, treading water and be able to, uh, to eke out some kind of win, uh, minority otherwise, in June. There, is, there are so many things that this government has to contend with, and I think COVID is just one of them. And, we, and as the weeks and uh, days and weeks move on, we'll see how they impact them. But I, 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 I think right now, I, you know, midterm stuff, even though the election is, you know, six, less than six months away or six months away, it really means nothing as far as I'm concerned to see whether they are ahead by a bit or, or in this neck and neck or whatever. It, it doesn't really hold water. And, and that divide, by the way, is still there. And, they, and again, I want to remind our listeners, this is their own polling, uh, that the major support for the Conservative Party, for the Doug Ford Party, is in the rural areas or small town Ontario. Uh, the major centers, uh, not so much. Uh, and that could be a factor, too. But that's a problem that, uh, that uh, both the federal conservatives and now the provincial progressive conservatives here in Ontario uh, have faced. So there's a uh, you, you got to figure, as you say, the old adage is, you know, a week is a lifetime in politics. And uh, there's uh, there's still about five months go. So that's a lot of lifetimes and a lot can change in, in that short period of time, can't it? Oh, in a heartbeat. It's that simple. I mean, I, I, I've seen elections change in the last week of an election. Well, that happened federally, didn't it? I mean, let's face it, with two weeks to go in the election uh, last year, a lot of people thought Aaron O'Toole was going to win the election. Maybe a minority government, but he was going to win. Uh, and then he uh, vacillated on a couple of key issues, and bingo, all of a sudden that turned the tide. Bill, it's happened federally. It's, I've watched it federally. I, I've been there provincially. And it's, it's literally, you know, the last week and a half or week was was told, you know, was was the difference of the election. Well, we'll so see what's going to happen here. All this and, stuff and that you... leads up, Bill, is, is you know, it, 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 it's until uh, we get closer to the election where, you know, it's this polls and otherwise really don't mean a heck of a lot. Well, there's two things going to play here, and I know we're almost out of time, but I just want to put these on the record. Uh, first of all, there seems to be some indication now from the medical community that uh, that maybe the worst of Omicron is over. And I don't mean to, to get overly optimistic here, but they say we may have peaked. And they say that it, you know it's going to go down as quickly as it went up. If that's the case, and we start to reopen again, you know, come election time in June, that, that's going to be a lifetime away. And people may forget, uh, voters don't have long memories. If they're in a happy spot uh, this spring because businesses are opening up again and things are starting to look pretty good and they're going to ball games, watch the Blue Jays after, you know, I'd, you'd be surprised how attitudes change. And that's that's a distinct possibility, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you've got, if people are, if people think this is behind them, you know, they, you know, they're putting food on the table. Maybe they're making plans to go on a vacation somewhere and, and they can see light at the end of the tunnel. 
a lot of the, the angst that they had and, and bad feelings they might have had towards this or that government can change and uh, can be forgotten because people are, their minds are elsewhere. We'll see, but that's been often the case. As long as people are happy and you know they've got jobs and they've got their family fine and, and everything is going along tickety-boo, well, what, what's happening at Queens Park or, or Ottawa doesn't, doesn't hold a lot of a uh, lot for them. Exactly. Uh, we've got to finish it off there. We're just about out of time. As always, uh, thanks so much for the time today. Great having you on the program. Uh, stay safe. Enjoy the weekend. We'll talk next week. You too, Bill. Thanks again. Richard Brennan, of course, a former journalist with the Toronto Star newspaper chain who covered both Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for many years. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Just a couple of weeks away now from the Beijing Olympics and uh, the Canadian contingent is getting ready uh, with some final preparations, of course. And, uh, well, to suggest this is going to be an Olympic like no other, I guess it would be a mild understatement given some of the, the, the background scenarios that have been developing. And to that end, we are so pleased to welcome to the program Katrina Lemaydon. Uh, Katrina is the chef de mission for the 2022 Beijing Olympics for the Canadian team. She's, of course, a double Olympic champion herself back in the Nagano Olympics in speed skating. And, and a pleasure to have you on the show, Katrina. Thank you so much for the time today. Good morning. Thank you. Great to have you with us here today. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the preparation and, and your uh, interaction and discussion with some of the athletes as they get into the final couple of weeks here before uh, uh, the competitions themselves. But uh, part of that is uh, an announcement earlier this week about a program called uh, Glory from Anywhere, which is kind of a launch for the Olympic uh, Winter Games for the Canadian team. Talk to us about that. Yeah, the campaign was just launched on Monday. Uh, for those who haven't seen it, definitely go to olympic.ca. It, it gives you goosebumps. And the narrative narrative is incredible in English and French, the images. And it's about the athletes and inspiration and what they've overcome. They've had health issues, family issues. Obviously, everybody in the world and our communities are dealing with the pandemic. And yet it talks about glory. And, you know, I look at that campaign and glory for the athletes. They want to get to Beijing. They want to stand on the podium. But it's also a challenge to every Canadian. You know, what is your glory? Because we come from all areas of the country and different heritage, different backgrounds, small towns, big cities. And yet, you know, what is it that we want to achieve? And so to me, this campaign really talks about uh, our goals. And again, you know, when we talk about sport, I'm talking sport at the community level. I live that every day with my role as Sport Calgary. And we're talking high performance. So um, it's an amazing campaign. I love it. I love the images. And to me, it's really impactful. Well, one of the things I've always enjoyed, and I've been a big fan of Olympics forever, as long as I can remember, of course, uh, were, well, you were involved in it, obviously, as an athlete for so many years. But during the TV coverage of that, uh, it was those fireside chats. I mean, we knew, okay, there's the Olympic team. There's the speed skaters. Uh, let's put a face to that name. And then what would happen during a lot of those those TV coverages was you put a story to that face into that name. And, mm -hmm. and, and those are intriguing, and they're, they're really inspirational, aren't they? Yeah. And, you know, we need traditional media to tell those stories. And the great thing for the athletes right now is they have also social media. So I, I do a monthly chef update. And then even yesterday, you know, was the cross country team announcement. I did a Zoom call with them. This is their chance to tell their story because everything they're going through is part of their story and their journey. So, you know, tell their story. Uh, let Canadians understand who they are, where they're from, you know, why they're doing what they do. And so I love that part of it. That That's always what I've enjoyed. I did four games as an athlete, five as media. And as media, I love telling those stories. And now it kind of comes full circle as Chef de Mission. It's, you know, it's, it's my opportunity to say to these athletes, tell your story because this is it. And, you know, it, it's the opportunity. It's part of the whole journey. And, you know, they'll, they'll have a long journey, sport and then outside of sport. Well, because those stories are the inspiration, aren't they, for those athletes that, that may be in the next Olympics? And th yeah, that's, I mean, that's the motivation for them to say, you know what, if they can do it, maybe I can do it. Yeah, and again, it's it, maybe it's within sport. Maybe it's not necessarily at the high performance level. Maybe it's in business, whatever it might be, because there are co such correlations between what the athletes go through, health issues, family issues, everything. And, you know, it's just, it's it's a way of being inspired. And right now, we all need 
a lot of inspiration. Um, but we also need sport. And when I talk about sport, you know, to me, it's key that these games, that's the message we bring back to Canadians at, and, and Canadians and everybody at every level. Because sport, we need the physical side. We need that social and mental side as well. And again, I'm not just talking organized sport. I'm talking, you know, sport is most basic and about being active. And so, you know, that's what I live for. Uh, all the athletes start at grassroots sport. And eventually you come back to it. I play old lady hockey, old lady ring in Calgary, <laughs> and we all come back to grassroots sport. That's where it's at. Talk to us about this year. I know that one of the themes, of course, when they talked about the, the launch here of Glory from Anywhere, uh, is, as you just mentioned, is to tell incredible sacrifices that the athletes have made to overcome uh, the, the, some of the obstacles in front of them. I, I, you could make an argument, Katrina, that uh, with the pandemic over the last two years now, uh, that maybe this is one of the most uh, telling stories. I mean, some of the, the obstacles that these athletes have had to overcome have been monumental, to say the least, uh, from a, a, a psychological and a physical standpoint, too. How difficult has it been for your team, for your athletes, uh, to train and prepare for these Olympics, given mm -hmm. what's what's going on around them? Yeah, I mean, for everybody, we, we understand that, you know, the world has changed. It's been difficult. It's been difficult in every single way. The athletes have continued to have the games as their focus. And, you know, these athletes, it, it, they choose to do it, but they're not doing it for a paycheck. They do it for the honor of representing every single Canadian. So for the last two years, they, they've been able to continue competition. They've had to adapt. I mean, if I look at the speed skaters, the oval pandemic last year, the oval shutdown, they ended up skating some short, like the long track skaters, skated short track at Windsport. And then they went out to Gap Lake. And if you Google some of the images of the speed skaters out there adapting and just making an oval out there, it's absolutely incredible. But it's also the fact that, you know, when you look at this campaign, Cynthia, who's a bobsledder, it's a new event, Mono Bob. So from Pyeongchang, she decided to, to train to become a bobsled pilot. So she's in this inaugural event um, as a pilot. Max Pro, who's a silver medalist from 2018, he's a, now a cancer survivor. So, you know, these athletes have overcome a lot. And the month before games is always stressful. You add the pandemic and this new variant, and they're trying to stay safe. And they're trying to continue their training fight for final quote Olympic spots. And when we got on a plane in two weeks, we, you know, getting to China is, is going to be accomplishment number one. Let's get there. Check mark. Let's get in that closed loop. Let's get ready for competition. There's going to be some trepidation, certainly, because what we've seen with the pandemic uh, is is the fact that the, the the Tokyo Olympics went off generally without a major hitch. In other words, the pandemic was there, certainly, but it didn't have the negative impact some people had feared. To, to say, "Hey, you can do this, and it it can be done in a safe manner," is is that is that some uh, consolation to the athletes saying, "Yeah, this this can work." Well, yeah, I mean, Tokyo, our entire team, the Canadian team contingent, including the mission team, which was just over 800 people, not one positive test. We have the Canadian Olympic Committee has an incredible medical team. They've been talking daily to the athletes, to the coaches, to team leaders, to all the teams, to all the sports, um, just on how to manage every moment of every day. So they have been working diligently. And um, yeah, it's, you know, it's a, it's a lot. It, it can be done. Um, again, this is different. You know, a month ago, we were watching World Cups in person and planning all these, uh, you know, team announcements in person. And obviously, you know, things change quickly and we all adapt. But um, it's the fact that they're trying to stay in their bubbles within whatever community they're in right now, whatever country they're in, continue to train because they're on this final training block before they peak and still you know, stay negative. And so that is the key right now. And yeah, it's, it's stressful for sure. The story today um, uh, that, uh, that we were carrying on the news, uh, that uh, Canadian security officials have uh, been talking to, to your folks, uh, the Chef de Mission, and of course others on the Olympic Committee and the team, uh, about security issues, about cyber attacks, et cetera, while they're over there. Uh, and and it's, it's a, a rather dark story, but I mean, I guess it's a, a reality that we have to face right now. Uh, and, and something that they're just saying, look, keep your eyes open. How do you find that balance, Katrina, to, to warn the athletes, to prepare them for that, but at the same time stay focused on, on what they're supposed to be focused on? There are always a lot of distractions. And so the athletes, this is part of the training. It's part of the training of trying to understand the environment. And every game has its ups and downs and has its own spirit, but then staying focused. And, you know, a little bit of the advantage at every games is that you're in this village and pandemic or no pandemic, 
you're, you're, you're pretty isolated. And so the athletes, once they're there, you know, they know, they know what they need to do and their field of play isn't different, but there are constant meetings with the Canadian Olympic committee, with the security team and the health and safety of the athletes and the entire team has always been priority number one. We saw that pre-Tokyo, Canada was the first country to say, you know what, in 2020, it's not safe. We want this delayed. And so we would not be going if we believed that there were risks. Um, you know, pandemic, obviously there, there are some risks, but security-wise, no, we have full confidence in the team leading us. Just politics is, is playing a role in this, sadly. And uh, I wanted to get your read on the impact that has on the athletes, too, in their preparation. I, I frankly don't think there was ever any serious consideration by the federal government here in Canada that they were going to withdraw the team. You know, they talked about, you know, diplomatic uh, banning, things of this nature. That's fine. But it was there. The discussion was ongoing, and it's ongoing around the athletes. How... how and again, you have, as you mentioned, you've got to stay laser focused on training. But with all these extraneous features, what oh, should we go? Should we go? Human rights, this, that, and everything else. Uh, it, is is it difficult for the athletes to maintain that focus? No, it's, there are always issues surrounding any games wherever they are. Obviously, there's been a lot of talk uh, regarding these games, but. You know, the athletes understand their role. They understand that they have a right to speak. They have a right to go. Uh, they have a right to speak when there. And there are certain guidelines. Nothing on the field of play must be neutral. And, you know, everybody abides by that. But the thing is, is that you know, when you talk about the political boycott, the message there was that there is a political boycott, but we want the athletes to go. Because people understand that a boycott of the athletes and the games, that doesn't work. Let's go there. Let's amplify the conversation because the conversation has been amplified over the last year, two years. And that only happens when we have a situation like this. And, you know, the games were assigned there over seven years ago. And there was, you know, there's been discussion since then. There's always politics when we talk about games. My chef de mission from 2002, she just reached out to me. She sent me an incredible email and she said, remember, we were five months post 9-11. She said, you should have seen what the media was saying to me. And, you know, th this is not a, a new situation, but when we look at what comes up and the controversy going into games, it's what good comes out of the games. Before Sochi in 2014, there was a lot of LGBTQ conversation. Mm -hmm. Coming out of those games, Canada created so many inclusive programs from those conversations. So from these conversations, let's celebrate Canadian values. Let's continue to amplify those conversations. Harkening back to your experience as, as an athlete and you know, as a participant in these Olympics, how important does this actually impact the athletes themselves? And and I, I, as a frame of reference, Katrina, even you know the fact that the NHL is not going to be there, of course, with their hockey players. What I heard from an awful lot of the players that we've talked to was disappointment, and it wasn't that well, you know, we want it, it, we wanted to represent this country. That, that, and I know that may sound awfully trite and like yeah, you know, cliche to an awful lot of people. But when you talk to the athletes themselves on the Olympic team or even athletes that are going to be a participant, maybe the professionals in some of these facets, that seems to be a consistent theme. There's something different about playing for your country than there is for competing for dollars or for any other kind of competition. There's a nationalistic aspect to this, I think, that a lot of us may never experience. But I think we have to respect the fact that it's the driving force for an awful lot of these athletes. For sure it is. It's, uh, you know, it is a huge honor. And you don't take it lightly. And, you know, I even said to the athletes last night when I was on cross-country skiers, you know, it's such an honor that we get to do this, but it's also a responsibility. And so take, don't take that lightly. And, you know, it, it took me, I, I knew the power of the games, but I think it took me coming out of the games. And, and these will be my 11th games. And, you know, I, I guess it's a little bit of, I now, maybe as a mom, being involved in sport, continually in my life, grassroots, high performance, um, the power of the games, and especially this time in our lives, we need that. We need things that bring our country together, that bond us. And I'd always said I would only get the Olympic rings tattoo. People assumed I had it for years uh, if I was chef de mission. So 
just over a month ago, 60 days out, I finally got my Olympic rings tattoo. And for me, it's because I want to portray and, and continue to send the message that it's not just about results and being an athlete. It's about giving back and it's about what the games do. And it's about the power, the power of the games and the flame and the rings. Part of that's is being Canadian, isn't it? I mean, some of us, of course, were born and raised in this fabulous country. Others have their own stories, as, and you've talked to some of those. And I guess that's that's going to be part of the glory from anywhere uh, who maybe came here as immigrants and and had to learn to adapt to a new country and and training. Uh, Neil deGrasse talked about this, you know, after he won, of course, in the Summer Olympics. It just it it just heightens the emotion to say, look at where I've come from. And this is a you know, and and it's, again, that a cliche, but what a great country this is that somebody like me could actually do something like this. Well, for sure. I mean, I'm I'm a first generation Canadian. I have dual citizenship with Great Britain. My parents both came from Scotland in the 60s. And, you know, they, they chose to stay here with no other family here. Um, so my parents had never skated a day in their life. And what do we do is we choose speed skating, going outside of minus 30, <laughs> minus 40, and only turning left. And they're thinking, could you have chosen something different? Uh, but again, it's, you know, it's, it's that Canadian way of we have opportunities. And, you know, that's what I love about what I do day to day in Sport Calgary. We introduce sport and sport, some sports that people have never heard of to Canadians, to Canadians that have been here for generations, to new Canadians. Because to me, there's always, there's something for everybody. And again, we don't always know how, how sport can impact us. And so, you know, that that's what I've found in my life. And and, and that's what sport can do. It, it can connect us. And, you know, through my kids, it connects us with, with other people. And then we get involved. And, you know, it, it's, it truly is about um, connecting our country. Well, as we mentioned, three weeks, well, two weeks from now, you're going to see you on the plane, and then the uh, the competition starts. Uh, we're excited about this. And uh, the Olympics are the Olympics. And uh, we feel so proud of our, our Canadian athletes. And I know they're so fortunate to have somebody of, of, of your realm, Katrina, that's that's there with them to offer them that kind of support. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Uh, good luck uh, over there. And uh, hopefully we can talk about a very successful Olympics in the the weeks ahead. Oh, wonderful. Thanks so much. And uh, yeah, to everybody, cheer cheer on the athletes. They'll, they'll yep. do us proud. You betcha. Thanks again. Katrina Lomendon, chef de mission for the uh, Canadian team, of course, the 2022 Beijing Olympics, uh, herself a double Olympic champion in speed skating. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.